I can endure this. I can endure this patch because there'll be happy. I'll find my way back to those days again. But you really can't get a grip on sadness until you get a grip on happiness and realize how precious it is and embrace it when it happens. That to me becomes your best armor for sadness when sadness comes along. Welcome back to series four of How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The paperback version of How To Be Sad, The Key To Happiness is out on January the 20th. You can pre-order it now and I'd love to hear what you think. In the meantime, please join us as each week a very special guest shares their own story of how to be sad well. My guest today is Mitch Album, American author, journalist and musician, whose books have sold 40 million copies worldwide. Having achieved national success as a sports writer in his early career, in 1997 he published Tuesdays with Maury, an account of the weekly reunions with his old college professor, Maury Schwartz. Maury was dying when Mitch made contact with him, and the book is a poignant recollection of the wisdoms passed down from teacher to former pupil. It went on to spend four years on the New York Times bestseller list and became the best-selling memoir of all time, made into an Emmy award-winning film produced by Oprah Winfrey, no less. Mitch went on to write nine more bestsellers, including his latest, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. He's well known for the inspirational stories and themes that weave through his work and says now, I like to say that I don't write about death. I write about life. Death just gets your attention. So, Mitch, thanks so much for joining me. I'd love to start right there. Why is it that death gets our attention? Well, because most of us think we're going to live forever, even though we know intellectually we're not. And because we think we're going to live forever, the things that we sense deep down that we need to change about ourselves, reprioritize about ourselves, reorganize about how we're spending our time, generally get pushed along, figuring, well, we'll get to that. I'll get to spending more time with my family after I get my career where I need it to be. I'll get to spending more time with my friends once I get everything settled financially where I need to be, you know, I'll get around to maybe going back to church again, uh, you know, but first I've got so much to take care of in front of me. And, and then all of a sudden something happens, you get a bad doctor's diagnosis and all those things that you just kept figuring you had all the time in the world for, suddenly you realize you don't have enough time to do. I say that there's usually one person who dies in my books and it usually the death itself takes about a half a page and the rest of the book is about life or what they learned from that death or whatever. And uh, I always laugh when people say you're infatuated with death. I said, do you say that about people who write about serial killers who write crime novels? People die every three or four pages in their books and you're not saying that about them. You don't have one person in my book dies and the rest of the book is about life. And, and you're asking me that question. So I, I think it's just uh I think when you have heaven in your title of a lot of your books, people tend to think that there's an infatuation with death, but there is not. I am really not that interested in death. I'd like to avoid it as much as I can and for as long as I can. And um, I like to talk about life. And so can you take me back then to the beginning in your mid-30s when you're working as a sports writer 
but you perhaps aren't particularly happy. Is that fair? And then you have a, a moment, a fork in the road when you see your former professor on TV. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I'm not sure that I realized I wasn't particularly happy. I think, to be brutally honest, I thought I was doing great. I thought that I was successful and I was getting more and more successful and I was well known and I had multiple jobs and I was earning a good living. And the fact that I was going extremely fast to do all that uh, and existing on four hours of sleep a night to do it and uh, making it my priority didn't strike me as anything bad. So there I was, uh, 37 years of age in this uh, bubble of, of success. And here in America, I was on television on the national program, sports program. So people re literally recognize me when I walk through airports and places like that. And I had a very successful radio program and wrote sports books, wrote a sports column for a newspaper, worked about 80 or 90 hours a week. And one night I happened to be uh, flipping the channels on the television and did a double take on one of the news programs here, uh, a very well-known one uh, with Ted Koppel called Nightline there was a familiar face, a thin, sickly, white-haired version of my old college professor, Maury Schwartz, who I had been extremely cl close to while I was in college and had spent all four years taking his classes, had, had walked around campus with him, eaten lunch with him, been to his home. And I always promised that I would stay in touch with him after I graduated. And then 16 years had gone by and I hadn't even made a phone call because I was so infatuated with my own success and too busy. Like I said to you a little earlier, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. Well, 16 years, I didn't get around to it. And then all of a sudden I see him on television. He's talking about what it's like to die. And I realized that he has what you call motor neuron disease, what we call Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And he only had months left to live. And uh, I was horrified. I was embarrassed. And I decided I would make one phone call to ease my conscience. When I called, the nurse handed him the phone. And I had forgotten that back in college, I used to call Maury coach. It was a sports affectation. You know, hi, coach. How you doing, coach? That kind of thing. Long since forgotten. When I heard his voice on the phone say hello, I remember exactly what I said to him. Professor Schwartz. My name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years was, how come you didn't call me coach? Needless to say, by the end of the conversation, I was going to visit him. Guilt is a very powerful motivator. And I went to visit him, what I thought would be a one-time visit. And he was very much afflicted with ALS. He couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair. He could barely move his arms. He needed somebody to carry him from place to place. And he needed someone literally to wipe his behind after he went to the bathroom. He couldn't do it himself like a child. But he was so just open and uh, positive about the world and about the things he was discovering and about what was still left to live in his life and, and how happy he was to see me again. And I realized when I went home that night that I was 37 years old and perfectly healthy and he was 78 years old and dying, and he seemed 10 times happier, more content with his life than I was. And what was the matter with that picture? And so I began to go back. I went the following Tuesday, and then the next Tuesday, and then pretty soon Tuesdays just became our day. And I went every Tuesday that he had for the rest of his life, and basically got to take one last class with him 
which could have been called What's Important in Life Once You Really Know You're Going to Die. And uh, he was able to say to me, this matters, this doesn't matter, you think this matters, but when you get to where I am, and you will get to where I am, it's not going to matter. And it was so precious and so valuable and uh, to have that information now when I was young enough and healthy enough to actually do something about it. And that led to many changes in my life, uh, not the least of which was a little book that I wrote about it to pay his medical bills, which was the only reason I wrote it. And it wasn't supposed to ever find its way to England, let alone let alone, I wasn't supposed to find its way out of Michigan, you know, the state that I live in. I didn't, I thought I'd have it in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life. They only printed 20,000 copies for the whole world. And it was called Tuesdays with Maury. An amazing thing happened with that book. It began to be read and people passed it on to other people and other people. It got reprinted and reprinted and reprinted. And currently, I believe it is the most successful memoir ever published, uh, at least in America. And that changed my life in enormous ways. You, it, it certainly is. And I think it's worldwide as well in terms of the best-selling memoir. 47 countries, I believe now. It's, it's huge. And Maury didn't know that you, were, that you were planning to pay his medical bills, did he? That was, a, no. that was news to him. Yeah. No. And honestly, that was the first nice thing I think I had done as an adult for someone else that didn't involve something in it for me. Because, you know, remember, at the time I was a sports writer, for me to go write a book about a man dying from ALS wasn't going to help my career. It was going to be a deviation from it. Uh, but he had told me how in debt he was from his medical bills. And the only thing I could think of was to write a book. And I went around to a lot of publishers in New York quietly without him knowing about it and said, listen, there's a, I'm doing this thing every Tuesday. It's kind of amazing. I'm getting this incredible education. I think it would, other people would want to know it, too. And I am just looking for enough money to pay his medical bills. That's all you have to pay us. And everybody said, no, everybody. No, boring, depressing. You're a sports writer. Nobody wants to read that from a sports writer. And honestly, I would have given up if it was a project for me because that many negative responses, I would have said, well, this is obviously a bad idea. But because it was for someone else, and I believe that we do things differently when things are for other people, you know, the, the parents who fight so much harder for their children than they might fight for themselves, you know, because it was for someone else, I kept pushing. I finally found a publisher three weeks before Maury died, who was willing to print it up, small little print run, gave us just enough money to pay his medical bills. I was able to give the money to Maury and um, say, listen, you don't have to worry about your bills when you die like you were, you know. At least that'll be taken care of. And uh, I always say that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury for me because we had come kind of full circle. He had been so kind and giving and all that throughout his whole life to me. And I was always the taker. And here at the end, finally, I was able to give him one thing before he died that he was able to take. But for the rest of the world, Tuesdays with Maury hadn't even begun yet. And I've I've heard that Maury was very worried, as I think in the UK we have the a massive privilege of having the NHS, but you know medical bankruptcy is I think something that we are starting to understand more about. And and I know Maury was worried that he would almost have two deaths when he went into the ground, and then leaving that debt to his family. What was his reaction when you when you told him? He cried. That wasn't unusual for Maury. <laughs> he cried pretty much at you know a knock knock joke. So. Uh, 
but he cried and and I, I did say to him, you won't have to die twice. He said, I'm going to die twice. Once when I die and once when I, wherever I go to, when I realize my family has to sell the house in order to pay my medical bills. And I said, listen, don't die twice. We're going to publish this book. And, you know, the funny thing is that I never wrote a line of Tuesdays with Maury until after Maury died. And I, not too many people know this story, but I'll, I'll share it with you. Before Maury died, I wanted the publishers to hear his voice because it was obvious they were never going to meet him. You know, he was in Boston. They were in New York. He was too sick at that stage to entertain anybody. So literally, they were going to be publishing this book and the wisdom of this guy who they'd never met. And I thought it was important for them to hear his voice. And these, this was before the days of iPhones where you could have filmed something. So I brought a little cassette recorder and I said, I want you to record a message for the publishers. And he said, okay, turn it on. I said, well, do you want to practice? And he said, Mitch, at this age, I don't practice. <laughs> I said, okay. So I pressed play and record. And he said, hello, good people of Doubleday. This is Maury Schwartz. Thank you for agreeing to publish our book. Mitch is going to provide the music and I'm going to provide the words and we'll make a beautiful symphony together. And I know I won't be there when it's published. I won't be around when the book comes out, but I want you to know wherever I am, I'll be watching. And I said, perfect, <laughs> you know, because I wanted to make sure that they took it seriously and they felt a little guilty if they didn't. So they have that tape still, the, you know, the editors uh, who were there and we always joke about it, you know, Maury's voice is haunting them and he was <laughs> watching over the publication. So I guess they did okay. That's amazing. And I'd love to, to sort of talk about some of the lessons that you learned from Maury. Uh, for me, the, the message of, yeah, forgiving everyone, everything feels very helpful. What were the key ones that stood out for you? There were many because each week we, took on a different subject. And then we talked about family. We talked about forgiveness. We talked about money. We talked about the world, friendship, attachment, many topics like that. I, I'd say the one that has stayed with me and affected me in terms of my own behavior the most was kind of accidental. He didn't really mean to bring it up as a topic, but I had noticed that other people on other days would come and visit him. And, and sometimes they would come on Tuesdays when I was there. And these were people who really didn't know him that well. You know, they, they knew him from a while ago, but they saw him on TV and they realized he was dying. They wanted to pay a visit, kind of like I intended to do a one-time thing, only they really did come one time. And they were always would always prepare to talk to him because they didn't know how to talk to someone who was dying. It's very uncomfortable. So they would bring photos and news clippings, whatever. And they, and they would sit outside his office and they would say, I'm going to cheer him up. I'm going to tell him funny stories, you know, nothing sad, upbeat, upbeat, upbeat. And then they would go into his office and the door would close. And an hour later, they would come out in tears. But they'd be crying about like their love life, their divorce, their job, their whatever. And they'd say, well, I don't know what happened. I went and I tried to cheer him up. But after a couple of minutes, uh, you know, he started asking me questions. So I started answering. Then he started really asking me questions. So I really started answering. And then he really asked me questions. And I really I went in to try to cheer him up. But I ended up being comforted by him. And I saw this happen so many times that I went in one time and I said to him, I don't get it. You know, if ever anyone had finally earned the right to say, 
let's not talk about your problems. Let's talk <laughs> about my problems. It would be you. You need to be carried from place to place. You need someone to stick their hand down your throat to pull up the phlegm. You can't cough up. You know, you need someone to wipe your rear end. You've hit the mother load of sympathy. You know, why don't you take advantage of it? And he looked at me as if I had just stepped out of a spaceship. And he said, Mitch, why would I ever take from people like that? Taking like that just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And it's a profound little sentence. It also rhymes, so it's easy to remember. <laughs> uh, giving makes you feel like you're living. And I have found that to be 100% true. And I have let it guide my life to the point that, you know, 60, 70% of my time now is, is strictly in charities and philanthropic things. I have nine charities I operate here in Detroit where I live and I have an orphanage in Haiti that for the last 12 years that I'm there every month and we have 53 children that we raise there. And that's, that's as time consuming as it sounds, but it is absolutely the most alive that I feel in my life. And I still have plenty of, you know, work and traditional writing work and things like that, that I have, but never do I feel more alive than when I'm giving of myself and involved in things like that. So that one really, really plays out for me on a daily basis. I wanted to ask about your, your philanthropy in the research for how to be sad and, and how to be sad well. From the hundreds of interviews I did, it was always the people who seemed to be able to handle the sadness well were people who gave something back, were people who, who did something for the community, these acts of service. And you mentioned with Mori, it was the one thing you'd done that was doing something nice not to get something back. But, you know, there is so much uh, science around warm glow giving and, and helpers high and how in an MRI machine, our brains light up with the pleasure of doing good. So it's it's hard to sort of to separate that and, and not instrumentalize it that of course we want to do good because it's the right thing to do but i'd love to talk more about the have faith haiti mission and and how important your work with with those children is for you right now it's everything uh, to me this new book that i wrote the stranger in the lifeboat which is on its premise uh, an adventure story out in the middle of the ocean and 10 castaways who are in a boat and they pull a guy in the boat who claims to be God, and, and they don't believe him uh, as they go on. And yet, really, it's a story about help. And it's a story about how we don't recognize, often in life, help when it arrives or help when it eventually arrives, because we tend to think of help when we call out for help from anybody or from the universe, or if you believe in God, from God, or we want it like right then and there. We want it like we're ordering a sandwich in a, in a restaurant, you know, give it five minutes. It should be here and it should look exactly like we expect it to look. And if it doesn't come when we want it and it doesn't look like we expect it to look, we think our prayers have not been answered. Nobody's listening to us. The universe is ignoring us, right? So you asked me about the orphanage. So my wife and I got married when we were, uh, well, she was 39, I was 37. And we wanted to start a family, but it didn't happen. Not that unusual when you get married at that age. And I had dragged my feet terribly, and a lot of it was my fault. But it became something that we wished for and didn't get. And I think it was pretty much the one thing my wife wanted, maybe more than anything in the world, and she didn't get it. And it would have been easy to say, uh, well, it's the one thing we wanted. How come we couldn't get that one thing? 
come on, God, you know, everybody else does. They all have kids. They all, you know, everybody around every, all of her sisters, brothers, everybody, they all had kids, not us. I kind of felt that way. She's a little bit more faithful than I am. I kind of felt, see, you know, there's no answer to your prayer. 15 years later, thereabouts, I end up down in Haiti and I just am going on a fact-finding trip with a pastor right after the 2010 earthquake because he had an orphanage there that he thought was destroyed and uh, all the kids had been killed. So I went with him. This was two weeks after the earthquake. And thank God the place had not been destroyed, but it had been overrun. And I was so like taken with what I saw there. I mean, I, how could you not be? It's You're seeing people dead in the streets, bodies everywhere, people walking around missing limbs. Everybody's covered in white dust you know, that's still floating around the air two weeks after the earthquake. And, and then all these children who were just abandoned and left at this orphanage. So I began to go back there and back there again. And again, I was bringing people from Detroit where I live to help build. And we built the first toilets. They were until then they were using a hole in the ground as a toilet, you know, and they were using bags as paper, you know, paper bags as toilet paper. We built the first toilets. We built the first showers. They never had showers. We built a kitchen. They never had a kitchen, built a school. But meanwhile, the kids were still starving. And so, you know, I said to this pastor, I don't get it. We're, I'm bringing all these people down. We're building everything. But I see the kids in, they're in the dirt and they're eating a, one cup of rice. What's going on? And that's when he told me he didn't have any money to operate the place. And he hadn't for years. And he was in his mid-80s. And he said, I'm, uh, nothing's going to change. And in one of those moments, you don't even realize what you're doing. And I certainly didn't. I said to him, oh, well, I could probably run this place if you want me to. I I run some charities in Detroit. How much different could it be? You know, and he basically said, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Here it is. You know, and that was the last we saw him. <laughs> and I have been running it ever since. That was 2010. I now have 53 children who I know everything about them. And, you know, they came to us when they were one or two or three years old. And we raise them and educate them, nurture them, feed them, love them promised them college degrees, which all of them had get college scholarships. And my wife and I, one day were sitting around talking. We said, you realize that this is everything we ever wanted. This is the family that we dreamed about, but it's 10 times the family that we dreamed about. I think in our wildest dreams, we wanted 53 kids, but we have them. And I realized that, you know, that was the answer. That was the help that came. It wasn't the sandwich that I ordered at the time and it didn't come in my time but it came and just like this guy in the lifeboat who says he's god but they don't believe him because he doesn't look like god and he's skinny and he's average looking and he he gets hungry and he falls asleep and he drinks alice's water yeah Ooh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, they, you know, they say, well, this can't be it because it doesn't look like and it didn't come when we wanted it. And all. But as you read the book, you start to think, well, what made him? Maybe they're making a mistake. And so um, that's what that orphanage has, has proven to me. Right now I spend I'm there every month. I have been every month since 2010. I'm on something like 150 trips to Haiti. Right now, Haiti is an extraordinarily dangerous place. And it's very dangerous for our kids. It's dangerous for us. It's dangerous for our staff. But it doesn't stop me from going. But it does make you know things very difficult for our kids because it's been almost two years and they haven't been outside of the orphanage at all because it's just not safe to go outside. And between COVID and the kidnappings, we can't do it. And it's not a natural way for a child 
to be raised in a one third of an acre facility. We don't have any grass. It's all concrete. You know, the kids don't get to see grass or play in a soccer field or things like that. It's not normal. So I'm praying that things get better there, but I don't know if they will. And may I ask about your relationship with faith now? I mean, you say things like, I love the analogy of, you know, wanting the sandwich and it doesn't come when you expect and doesn't come how you expect. But for, for, for those who perhaps don't have faith or struggle to have faith, how do you remain optimistic when you see things like the, the trouble in Haiti right now, for example? Well, as far as like things like that, trouble with Haiti or bad things happening in life, again, I'll cite a, uh, because this was in my, on my mind when I wrote The Stranger in the Lifeboat, there's a moment there where a bad thing happens on the boat. One of the passengers takes his own life overnight. It's not quite as dark as it sounds because he wants to be with his wife who he thinks is in heaven. And, and he's convinced now that this guy has come to the boat. He's one of the few that actually believes he is who he says he is. And he says, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to go to heaven, be with my wife. And overnight, he throws himself into the ocean unbeknownst to the, the rest of the people on the boat. And when they wake up in the morning and he's gone, they get angry with this God character, who, by the way, I'm not saying is God or isn't. You have to read the book, you know, uh, just say that things are not what they seem. I'll leave it at that. They say to him, how could you let him do that? And one of the guys gets angry at him and says, if you were really God, you would have stopped it. And he looks out to the sea and he says, God starts things, man stops them. That to me was an encapsulation of my view of my answer to your question. I believe that we have everything on this earth that we need to create a paradise for ourselves if we wanted to. We could feed every hungry person on this planet easily. We have all the resources for that. We could cure every illness. Look at what we did with the vaccine for COVID when we concentrated our efforts. You don't think if we did a worldwide push like that for cancer that we would get to the bottom of it very quickly. But cancer is a big industry. And there are a lot of people that don't want people to get to the bottom of it because a lot of money being made in cancer and cancer uh, treatments. We create the things that stop things. Man made guns and bullets and bombs. Man made nicotine and alcohol and, and, and all the things that, that stop us before our time. So I don't really blame God for bad behavior in Haiti by gangs with guns. I'm pretty sure in anybody's concept of God, that's not what God wants us to do. But if you believe in the idea of free will and that God gave us all the tools and then basically said, it's your earth, go ahead, you know, let's see what you do with it. Then I think man-made behavior can easily be explained. You know, there are bigger issues about well, what happens when we die. And even the question of, I can anticipate the British audience, which I have found in my experience is not so quick to come to faith as American audiences are, which I respect. I can hear them saying, oh yeah, well, <laughs> or oh yeah, <laughs> I don't do a good British oh, accent. Yes. But yep, yep. What about children? What happens when a child dies? You know, how do you explain that? Well, I've had to live through that. So I don't speak from a lack of background in that. We lost a child. So I, I still manage to have faith even through all that. And I'm happy to share the reasons why, if you want to know. I would I would love to talk about Chica. And I think in The Stranger in the Lifeboat, knowing what you have been through, the idea of, of losing a child and the pain of that must have been a, a very tough thing to write. Can you, can you tell us a little about Chica? Chica 
was born three days before the earthquake of 2010. On the third day of her life, she was sleeping on her mother's belly in a one room little shack made of cinder block and with a tin roof and the earth began to shake, an earthquake that would end up killing 3% of Haiti's population in less than a minute. The house collapsed, the roof fell backwards and they were left on this mattress in the dirt alive, you know, incredibly. And that night, her mother got some leaves from a sugar cane plant and wrapped Chica in them because the bed was ruined and there was no place to sleep. And she slept out in the fields in the sugar cane leaves for the next six weeks of her life. So she was obviously a child who was born tough and she would need to be tough. Her mother died two years later, giving birth to a baby brother in that same rebuilt shack. She died because there was no doctor present. There's never a doctor present when poor women give birth out in the provinces in Haiti. You, you're on your own or maybe a midwife. And whatever she died from, I'm sure if she had been in a hospital, wouldn't have been a problem, but there was nobody there. And the baby was born and she died in the same bed. And uh, little Chica was brought to us at our orphanage where she came at two and a half. And for the next two and a half years, she was like loud and bossy. And yeah, one of the biggest mouths we had at, at, at our orphanage. Everybody loved her because she was so young, but she told everybody where they could go and what they could do and all that. And then when she was five years old, she developed a brain tumor. And um, we brought her to America thinking that American doctors would be able to take care of her quickly and then bring her back home. Uh, but she never went back home. She had something called DIPG, which is basically a four letter word for death. They told us that she'd be dead in four months. We could try to fight it. We could try to go different routes, experimental routes, but it wouldn't make much difference. They said, just take her back to Haiti and let her die quietly. And we said, no, we're not going to do that because I know this kid. And if there was ever a fighter, she's it. And if she's going to fight, we'll fight too. That began what turned out to be uh, not four months or eight months or 12 months or 16 months, but two years. She lived for two years, staving that inevitability off. And we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for her. And along the way, we found something else. We found a family, you know, and as much as I have said, you know, we have 53 kids now in Haiti uh, with Chica, it was intense and immediate. She went from like overnight, she wasn't in America to sleeping at the foot of our bed in her own little bed. Uh, and suddenly we're in our mid fifties and we have a five-year-old in the room with us, waking us up in the middle of the night and, and, and shaking me in the morning saying, Mr. Mitch, I'm hungry for breakfast. And, you know, and all those kinds of things. And, and, uh, and for the next two years, that's how we lived because she, she didn't go to school because, you know, she was, we were always going to doctors and things like that. So we had a homeschooler and, and she was with us every minute. And uh, we had an incredible experience of uh, becoming a, a very unusual family. You know, a couple of parents in their 50s with a kid who doesn't look like them, talk like them, act like them. But yet we could not have loved her anymore if she was you know, born from the two of us. And when she died, I was extremely angry at the world and at God and any sense of there being order in the universe. And in the book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, you know, if you've read it. There's an, a character, the inspector, uh, the police inspector on the island who discovers the raft a year later, the life raft that those 10 people were in. He discovers it empty, floating on the island that he lives on. And he discovers a, a notebook inside a pouch 
and he opens it and starts reading. And that's how you learn the story is through this notebook. He lost a child too. And he's kind of my surrogate in the story. And he says, you know, there's no such thing as a benevolent force in the world that can't be benevolent to a seven-year-old girl. And that's how I felt about losing Chica. Uh, and I went on like that for some time. And I wrote a book called Finding Chica, which was a true story account. The reason I said I called it Finding Chica is because Chica had this incredible proclivity to hide whenever anybody came in the house or if I went out to take the garbage out. By the time I came back in, she threw a towel over her, a blanket over her. Or she went behind a couch and she'd hide. And she would make you say, you know, where's Chica? Where's Chica? Where's Chica? I can't find Chica. Where'd she go? I lost her. And you had to be very, very upset until you were finally adequately upset. She would throw the towel off and say, here am I, you know, or some heard her broken English. And it was such a beautiful little thing that she always wanted to be discovered. And one night we were um, putting her to bed. She had just watched a Peter Pan movie where Peter Pan gets to see his mother again at the end it must have filled her with some certain ideas and we were putting her to sleep and she said very sweetly how did you find me and i said what i, I thought the question was so sad that i just repeated i said how do we find you she said yeah how did you find me and i said you mean how did you come to us at the orphanage and she nodded her head but i think she meant it the way she asked it because in her mind, she couldn't remember anything from her life before. You don't remember your first two years, basically. You know, you might have an image here or there, but you don't really remember them. But she knew that she didn't, wasn't born at the orphanage. So in her mind, in her like movie cartoon mind, we like rode into the forest and, and found her somewhere and scooped her up and brought her back to the orphanage. And I realized that she and a lot of our kids feel that way, you know, that they were lost or abandoned or left outside. And some of them were left in woods to die under trees, literally, without exaggeration. Somebody found them and brought them to us. And so I called it Finding Chica because, you know, she loved to be found and we discovered her. Uh, but the end of that book, the last two lines of it are, we didn't lose a child, we were given one. And that's how my attitude has changed over the years. When I wrote, started writing that book, I was very angry. By the time I finished it, it was very cathartic. And I, I sort of realized, well, wait a minute, we didn't have to have that opportunity at our age. And here we were given a chance to be this tight knit little family for a couple of years. That's a blessing. You know, some parents get three days with their children. Some parents get three minutes. You know, we had two years and they were incredible. If you don't keep looking at it that way, you know, how did I get shortchanged? Even there's, a, again, to go to Stranger in the Lifeboat, there's a moment where one of the passengers is screaming at this God character saying, why did you let my wife die? Why did you, why did you take my wife? And the God character says, why is it that every time somebody dies on earth, the question is always, why did you take them? Maybe the better question would be, why did you give them to us? What did we do to deserve their sweetness, their joy, their memories? Didn't you have moments like that with your wife? He asked. And he, the guy says, yeah, every day. And he says, well, those moments were a gift, but not having them isn't a punishment. And, uh, you know, and he, he said, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. And for me, that's how, for me, I don't tell anybody else how to view it, but for me, 
if you believe in something beyond this world, anything beyond this world, then that brings you comfort because you know your child, in our case, uh, isn't suffering anymore. You know, she, she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, she couldn't move at the end of her life. She's not that way now, wherever she is. And she's not crying, even if I am. And so to me, that's a much more comforting way to think of loss than to just keep talking about what you don't have anymore. And I wonder, so how has each book changed you then? If the process of writing that book helped change your perspective on it? Well, the Stranger in Life was my 10th book. So I guess that's 10 books over 25 years. If you start with Tuesdays with Maury, I would say Tuesdays with Maury, I was simply an observer. I just was listening to a smart old guy tell me what was important in life when he was about to die. In Five People You Meet in Heaven, which was my first novel, I began to try to incorporate some of the lessons that Maury had taught me into fictionalized stories. And that was a story about a man who thinks he doesn't matter in life and goes to heaven and finds out that not only does everybody matter, but you meet five people from your life who show you moments that you change their life forever and your life forever and you didn't even realize. And then each subsequent book kind of carried a little bit of that wisdom, probably leftover stuff from Maury. And I created a different story about it, another fictional book, another fictional book. Eventually, when I wrote Finding Chica, which was 20, about 20 years after Tuesdays with Maury, almost to the year, I had become a little bit of the teacher as opposed to the student. Tuesdays with Maury was me sitting with an older man who was dying. Finding Chica was me sitting with a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old girl who was dying. In both cases, I was still learning. But in the second case, I was also trying to teach Chica what I've learned. And now, you know, with Strange in the Lifeboat, I think just the, the wisdom that I've observed from other people, it's not me. It's just all the older people that I've known in my life and watching them disappear from this world and seeing what they had to say before they did and trying to incorporate those things into messages that can help people today, you know, when they're, like I say, young enough, healthy enough to do something about it. And now I understand that I'm closer, I'm closer to Maury's age now than when I did Tuesdays with Maury, then I was to my age, okay? He looks very well on it, listeners. <laughs> well, well, you know, there's a portrait in my closet that looks <laughs> You know, you can't deny your years. And so I start to think of things, you know, more in the teacher's frame of mind than in the student's frame of mind. That's probably how I've changed. What motivates you to keep writing after so much success? Well, success never motivated me to write in the first place. So that's how much of it I have probably isn't going to deter me from writing. I wrote because I have to, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like that. You know, you can't really sort of imagine a world where you're not creating or telling a story in some way. I've always been a storyteller. I was a musician when I first started, but I was telling stories in my music. I wrote the lyrics as well as the music. And, you know, I always wanted, I took great pride in whatever the song was about. It wasn't just, I got a good lick or I got a good chord structure. I, I, it was what the song was about. And then when I got into sports, I told sp stories in sports. And, and then over the different mediums, I've written movies and I've written plays and I even wrote a musical, uh, you know, and, and of course the books, but it's all the same thing. It's just storytelling. So to me, like when I learn something or see something inspiring, the way my brain is wired is like, how can I create a story that illustrates that? That's my uh, photograph. 
And like some people feel like they've got to photograph something so they can keep it. I'm not a photographer, but if I can create a story that encapsulates whatever that was, that's my way of keeping it forever. And I've written it. And I've now I've made something with it. You know, I've stitched something around that moment, that lesson, that feeling, and I have it forever. I can put it on my shelf. How many books it sells, how many copies it sells, isn't the definition of the reason that you do it. I, I imagine that I'll continue doing this until the day I die. My hands don't work anymore or whatever, because I just feel compelled to tell stories. That's it's the only talent, honestly, it's the only talent I have. I'm really not very good at anything else but that. That's not quite true, though, because as you mentioned the music, you taught yourself to play piano. You've played in bands. You've worked as a performer in Europe and America. You paid for your tuition at Columbia. Is this right? Partly through yeah. working as a piano player. I wonder what part music plays in your in your mental well-being now. Well, I mean, I always have a song in my head, always. And it's funny, I can conduct conversations and still have a song in my head. And usually if I say a sentence, the lyrics of that sentence, I'll immediately connect to a song. Like the, the, whatever the words are in the sentence, there's a song of it, you know? And it has always provided great comfort for me, music. Although I cannot write when music is playing because it's too distracting to me. I start thinking about the chord structure or what instrument just came in or the arrangement or whatever. I, I have to shut it off. But I do think that music plays a big part in my writing. I try to write with a rhythm. And I've always been pretty good at that. Uh, my books are short. I kind of can get to the point, you know, whether people like them or don't like them. Most people say that they read very smoothly and, and, and quickly and you can keep turning the page. And I think a lot of that has to do with pacing and rhythm of sentences. And, you know, I, my, my wife has observed that when I write, I, I bob back and forth like I'm doing now for you on this Zoom call. I just, and I do, I just, I, I type and I write back and forth and I write. And when I stop bobbing back and forth, it usually means I'm stuck on something. You know, I hit a bad part in a paragraph. Otherwise I can just keep a beat as I'm going. And the sentences have to feel like that for me. And I change, I spend a lot of time changing sentences to fit like what I think is the rhythm of the paragraph and the rhythm of the paragraphs to the rhythm of the chapter. And, you know, and I reread and reread over and over again, and I slice and cut out, you know, no, that's a quarter note. We need an eighth note there, you know, no, that's a half note, whatever. And so I do think that music plays a lot in how I end up creating, because there's a rhythm to my, to my narratives and to my writing. That's fascinating. So are you reading out loud or are you yeah. just hearing the words in your head? No, I, I do both. I do both. I read out loud uh, a lot. In fact, I always read my books to my wife out loud. She's never read one of my books. Uh, she sits actually right where we are here. I'm at my desk and she sits around the corner there so that I don't have to see her face. Okay, she, makes Amazing. A, she makes a like grimace <laughs> face. On some <laughs> like, Ugh, that was terrible. I don't want to see that. But I'll just read it to her. And I learn a lot about, re about my, my books by reading it to her because uh, I hear it out loud. You know, I hear how it sounds. And I read my books for the audio version most of the time. There was only one book that I didn't. Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey actually read the one that I didn't. So maybe I should. <laughs> I, he, well, I don't think he was in Downton Abbey then, but maybe I sh shouldn't be reading them and I should just try to get 
British, famous British actors to do it. <laughs> I'll volunteer. I'll take one. <laughs> no, I'm sure he did a brilliant job, but you read you read uh, Strangers in a Lifeboat to me. You did it very nicely. Thank you. That's so interesting. And I was I always so curious as well, the, the secrets of, of your long marriage. I mean, that is that's that's amazing that she is your first reader first listener and that you you have been through struggles and trying to have a family and then finding that you got a family in a very different way these are all hard things how do you stay married and stay happy in that marriage you know i didn't realize it was such a challenge (laughs) but i always believe first of all we got married later in life you know we weren't kids that uh you know we just were attracted to each other physically in in our early 20s and we just decided to go get married you know and then and then you find out when you really get to know somebody well okay physical attraction is one thing but you need a lot more than that we were already fairly mature we'd been through our shares of relationships and all that when we got married but we also believe i always say that there's three parties to a marriage let's assume a traditional one for the argument's sake there's a husband there's a wife and then there's the marriage itself and you need to be in love with the marriage as much as you're in love with your spouse, because there are going to be many moments where you're not going to be so crazy about your spouse. You know, you're going to be mad. You're going to be fed up or you're going to say, you know, I wonder if I'd be better off out of this thing. You know, you allow your mind to go there. But we have a wall in our kitchen that we've been keeping since before we even got married. And it continues. It's, it's grown like ivy. And it's just photographs of us at different moments in our marriage alone and together with people that we love and friends that we have and family that we have and it just starts growing and then it took over the wall goes over to the right and it goes over a window and it comes down the other wall and and I always say that there are many times that that wall saved our marriage you know because we might get into something a row or you know you get angry but and you might entertain that thought about it which it's never the first thought about breaking up that does it uh, you, you don't break up when that thought first comes to your head, but it takes root. And once it takes root, then you start watering it with every other little argument that you have and any other little fight. And you go, yeah, you know, maybe I am. Maybe I should be out about. Well, we don't let it take root. That's the trick is you don't let it take root. And the way you don't let it take root is you look at that wall and you say, we built something here. I love this marriage. I love what we built. And. I'm not going to walk away from this just because I might be angry at the person. This is the third party in our marriage. And we need to be true to that too. And, uh, you know, that's been enough. I know that it's true that when you lose a child, many, many couples break up. And I can see why, because it's murder. It's the worst thing that we have ever gone through. And we watched our little girl. We were in bed with her when she took her last breath, which is both beautiful and haunting at the same time, leaned on each other, you know, uh, we couldn't imagine getting through it without the other one. And so we didn't go that route of blaming, you know, why didn't you do more for this? Or you should have called the doctor for this, but people do. And they often break up for us. It kind of brought us closer together. It's just hard to imagine not being with someone whom you went through that with, you know, because how could you ever share that with anyone else? How could some other woman or some other guy come along and you say, well, let me tell you about how I felt when I lost my child. That's just too alien to try to introduce to a relationship. When you went through that and when you go through tough times now, 
how how do you cope? What helps you? Your wife, obviously, you help you help each other. I wonder if there are any other things that you could share. One of the reasons I agreed to do your podcast is because I there's the name of your podcast. I, I've never seen a one quite like it, and I think it's really a really good premise and a good question. How are you sad? How do you be sad? Because sadness is a fact of life, and sadness is an emotion that. You know, many, many people think that the answer to how to be sad is to run from it, you know, uh, run as far away from sadness as you can so you never have to be sad, but you're going to be. A better thing would be to figure out how to best be sad and how to understand sadness in the first place. And the way that I have come to understand sadness is to first come to understand happiness. If you believe that the happiness that you have on your good days is an incredible gift and not some kind of guarantee, but a gift, something that you have found your way to and you should celebrate and remind yourself of how many good days you have. Then when you have bad days, when you get sad, you can see them as the counter to all the great days that you had. And as that God character says in the book, your great memories, your happiness, when you don't have that on a given day, the absence, the absence of that isn't punishment. You can still appreciate that. So when I have a bad day, but I can say, yeah, but look at all the amazing days I've already had. Look at all the great days I've had before this. I am way, 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 way in the black, as we say in the States. I can endure this. I can endure this patch because There'll be happy. I'll find my way back to those days again. But you really can't get a grip on sadness until you get a grip on happiness and realize how precious it is and embrace it when it happens. That to me becomes your best armor for sadness when sadness comes along. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And it's always so heartening when someone has understood exactly what I'm trying to do. So thank you. I really appreciate that. And then finally, I could talk to you for hours, but I always like to end by asking my guests, knowing all that you know now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? I would first have to tell my 21-year-old self to slow down because I was moving so fast that I wouldn't have had time for sadness anyhow. It's one of the ways that people deal with sadness is just to run so fast that it can't catch them. And these are people, including myself, who don't cry at funerals, even if it's somebody that they love, who don't register bad news when it's given to them, even though it could be horrible news. I was like that when I was that age. And I realize now I had a, a beloved uncle who, you know, it was more of like a second dad to me. And when he died, and I was there the day he died. In fact, I was the last member of our family, except his wife, to see him at four o'clock in the morning. He got into an elevator to go to the hospital. And I remember uh, I had come upstairs. I was living in the same building. I come upstairs at four o'clock in the morning because they had two young kids. And they said, somebody's got to watch the kids. So I came upstairs. And I remember him walking down the hallway, going into the elevator. And, uh, he was like green, his, you know, he was clearly very sick. And uh, I had some sense, even though I was only 22, three years old, I had some sense that maybe, maybe this is going to be the end or something. And I, I felt the need to like come up with something to say to him. Uh, but he was in the elevator and, you know, you're that age and what, 
So as the doors were closing, I said, don't worry, I'll take care of the kids. That's all I could think of, which as it turns out, is not a bad thing to say to somebody if it's the last thing you're going to say. And he died two hours later. And uh, I was the one who had to tell his children that their father was dead. And um, I was the one who received the call from his wife. And she screamed on the phone, Mike's dead, he's dead, he's dead. I mean, she was like hysterical. And I never cried. And I love this man so dearly. And I never cried, not when, not when she called, not when I had to tell the kids, not at his funeral, not when I spoke at his funeral, nothing. And, oh, maybe a year later, I was living in a different apartment in a different part of New York in a different life. I had gone back to school and all, everything was different. I woke up one Saturday morning thought about him and started crying uncontrollably, sobbing. And I realized now that I was running so fast during those years that it took that long for the sadness to catch up to me. And when finally my guard was down and I wasn't whatever, and it just all hit me. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It wasn't that I didn't feel because I, I wondered about myself. I said, this is nuts. You love this man. He's like the closest person. To you. And you, you're not crying. You're sitting through the funeral. You're not crying. You're not, but everything else in my life was going so fast. And all my work and everything was so, such in a hurry. Such a, and I didn't allow myself to feel anything too much, you know, because it would slow you down. But it will find you, you know, and it did find me. And it found me that morning. And I, I could not stop crying, uh, which was over a year later. So the first thing I would tell myself is slow down and allow sadness to find you in its natural state so that you feel it when you're supposed to feel it you know uh when you actually react to it that means you're in rhythm with the world because if you ignore sadness because of the pace you're keeping you're also going to ignore happiness wonder marvel love and i did you know i just worked i was a machine you know and i missed out on all of those emotions so you know slow down and don't be afraid of it because you know, with it comes an appreciation. I'll end with the, you know, the current book I wrote, this character who says he's God, says to them at one point, you know, your time on earth was never supposed to go on forever. That's the way that I teach you to appreciate it, the brevity of your existence. I go on forever. You will go on forever. Your life on earth will not. And he says, the human form was never meant to be permanent. That gift is reserved for the soul. And when we understand that, and when we understand that part of living is loss, and that is a beautiful expression that I love, I've used in some other books, the only whole heart is a broken heart. And it's true, because if your heart never breaks, then how do you know what happiness is? How can your heart ever beat fully with happiness if it's never been broken? If you think all this is going to go on forever, then how would you appreciate it? If you think love never stops, then you can't really appreciate love fully, you know, until you've lost it. And that holds for everything. So those cracks in our heart, those are like lines on our face, you know, they show that we've been around for a while. And um, being around for a while is the only way to really experience life and in all its highs and lows that's probably what i would tell my young self who would then say yeah 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 i gotta go <laughs>
busy. I gotta go. I got to dear. Got somewhere I have to be. The broken heart. Thank you so much. What a place to end. Thank you so much for your time, Mitch Album. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How to Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.